0: What they need to do in the midst of their suffering. Uh, the opening verses that if, if you've ever memorized or you ever want to go back and you know, sometimes we get to an age where we think, well, I can't memorize scripture anymore. Yes, we can. We're memorizing commercials and jingles and stats. We can memorize God's word if we choose to, right? First Peter chapter one, verse three and ongoing, maybe down to verse nine, would be a great passage to memorize where it speaks of the, the it's a it's a doxology blessed be the god the father but but then he goes on to say why that god is worthy of being blessed because he has caused us to be born again and and the point why we're looking at this briefly is is where he goes with this when by verse six he says in this everything that i've said before in this you should rejoice he's reminding them that this is where their joy should be because they're going through he says Maybe for a little while, you are being grieved by various trials. So there's our our context. There's trials in their life. And Peter is trying to remind them in the midst of these trials to remember that God is using even these trials for their good and for his glory. And in the midst of these trials, how am I supposed to rejoice? He reminds them of their great salvation and who Jesus is and what he's done. That is kind of the launch for the rest of the letter. By the time we come to chapter 2 and look at the verses that we're looking at here in verse 21, he has even gone further with this idea that you have suffered, not just that you're going through suffering, but a more specific way to define it is that you're going through unjust suffering. The verses right before this tell us that this is the context, that you are dealing with unjust suffering. How are you supposed to deal with that? And then I think it's very clear How Peter believes the follower of Christ can walk through these trials. And it is, like Hebrews says, look to Jesus. Fix your eyes upon him. Because what we'll see Peter do here in these next few verses is just give a beautiful portrait of who Jesus is. Reminding them, this is the only way you can run this race, is keeping your eyes on Christ now I think in this passage we'll see very clearly there's three aspects of that portrait that he's bringing out for us. So let's just name them now and then we'll come back and look at them. Number one, he speaks of Jesus as the sin-bearing Savior. He is your sin-bearing Savior. Secondly, he speaks of Christ as the suffering servant. And then finally, I hope we get to it, he'll he wants us to see Christ as our soul's shepherd. Sin, bearing and Let's start with verse 21. This is the calling of God on your life and on mine. For to this you have been called. To what? Well, the verse is right before this. that We already knew that. this suffering in fact he he lays it out in such a way that's so challenging to us in our human nature because if there's ever a time I'm okay with suffering which it's hard to even ever say am I ever okay with suffering? not really but is there a time where I can kind of say you know what it's usually humanly when I would say, you know what? I kind of deserve it. I've done something I shouldn't have done. Therefore, I made my bed. Now I just have to lie. Where, I, where most of us really struggle with suffering is when we stop and say, I don't think I've done anything to deserve this. I don't understand why this is coming my way. It seems so unjust. Peter actually reversed all of that and said, if you have sinned in our suffering, you ought to grieve. When you should be okay with suffering is when you know you've done nothing wrong. It's so challenging. You've done nothing wrong because in that moment you can take joy in the fact that you know that the suffering is coming upon you because you're a child of God, because you're a follower of Christ. And if they did this to the master, they also would do it and lose the suffering. And it's in that light, then, that he says, "You're called to this. You're called to walk that path that Jesus walked, and be willing to suffer even when there's no there's no warrant for it. This you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example." Now we're talking first here about the the fact that Christ is our sin bearer. And it would be easy to read a verse like this and miss this point that Peter says, Christ suffered for you. Those are two critical words in this verse. If he just said, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, then we could all just make the Christian life about Jesus did this, we just kind of walk in his steps, and isn't that where a lot of churches go? There's a lot of churches out there that proclaim what Christ has done, and then just tell us to walk in the same ways, and that this is Christianity, and if you live out the same commandments, or you, you you make the attitudes the focus, and you just be these things. But the Bible—that's not the gospel. That's not the Bible's teaching of Christianity. Yes, there is a model for us to follow, and we'll get there in a moment. But it, we can never go there first. That's like asking somebody. it's like taking a toy that has no batteries and expects something good to happen. Our children are always disappointed on Christmas when we got gotten the toy, but we forgot about the batteries. And there's, and why would I hurt that? Because we're, we're speaking about power. Where does the power come from? I have no power in of myself to live on the Christian life or to follow Christ in his footsteps,
1: yet alone in this
0: area. Suffering and rejoicing in the midst of it. Who can do that? You cannot do that outside of the work of God by the Spirit of God that transforms a person. And how are we transformed? First, by understanding our behalf. We'll never be like him until we first have received him. And that's why Peter in this passage, not just in these two words, but as you know, as he goes on later in this text, he, he's very clear in verse 24 that this is how it happened. He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die of sin and live to righteousness. Or later, in chapter 3, he speaks of this clearly, for Christ suffered once for sins, so that the, this is the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that the unrighteous... Might be brought to God. Christ, the sinless one, the fulfillment of the Old Testament lamb that is without blemish. We had Isaiah 53 read because you can see in this text that certainly was on Peter's mind. Peter, when he thinks about Christ and he puts Christ out there as a portrait for those who are suffering, he's first. When he thinks of unjust suffering, where does his mind go? Of course it goes to the cross. Has there ever been any greater suffering, unjust suffering, than what Christ endured on the cross on behalf of sinners? He's reminding us that Christ did this for us, in our place him in my place the sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. Or lure him, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. That he would give his own son to treasure. This is a reminder to us. We needed often to be reminded that all our sin deserves God's wrath. But in God's wisdom and mystery, instead of Him forsaking us, He chose to send His Son and allow His Son to be forsaken, so that you and I could be forgiven. On the cross, we remember the mocking that came to Christ, and And they accused him, if you are really the son of God, then do something, save yourself, not really understanding that if he was to save himself, there would be no way he could save sinners. They almost mocked him with that idea that if you would come down from the cross, then we'll believe that you are. But now there's nothing to believe in. If he comes down from the cross, he's not atoning on behalf of sinners. This is the way that sinners can be saved. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is where we always must start when we think about following Christ and the the example that he sets for us. The first words by receiving him and embracing him, the one who bore our sins. It moves from this spot of him being our sin-bearing savior to secondly that he is our suffering servant. Verse 21, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Now, while I've already tried to make clear that the his example is not primary, it's secondary. That does not mean that that's not important. It's very important in this text. It's why Peter's writing as he is, because of the situation the believers find themselves. And so he's lifting up the portrait of Christ and reminding them that this is the one that you, while you suffer, you keep your eyes on him. I've used this many times. My kids are tired of it, but I don't think I've used it here yet, so I can still use it one more time. there, there, there was an athlete that played for the Miami Dolphins. I'm Dolphins fan, so that's why this matters to me. And uh, he, did, after his career, uh, was was out in the Atlantic Ocean fishing, and his, uh, his boat capsized, and so now he's he's stranded. He's by himself. He has no way of, of getting a hold of anyone. He ends up spending about 24 hours, maybe even looking for out in the water. And he, at times during this, you know, trying to survive, he watched helicopters go by and thought, you know, they would just see him and they didn't see him. And now it's getting dark. And at some point he notices that sharks are starting to kind of circle around him. And when it was all said and done, and so I'm giving it the end of the story, he survives. And somebody does finally see him and rescue him. When he, When they did a press conference and they said, how did you endure that? Obviously with no food, no nutrients, you know. And he said, I had in my back pocket a picture of my life. And he said, every time I felt like I couldn't go on, I just pulled that out. And I said, I got to survive. I got to make it. Now, if, if a loved one like that can stir us up, Peter's reminding us the ultimate example is to look at the portrait of Christ. To remember that he endured hostility. That he endured the cross and did it with joy because of what he was accomplishing for the glory of God and the good of his brothers and sisters. That's what Peter's doing for us. And now he holds out Christ's example he says he is the ultimate example and you ought to follow in his steps. I love this, this language. It just reminds us that that the Christian walk is about just putting one foot in front of the other. And really, we're just on vacation. It's that idea of you're, you're out on the beach and, and somebody steps in. So, you know, you like as a father to take those steps and watch your son walk in there. And, and that's the picture. It, and it's great, the Christian life, because it reminds us that Jesus is not calling us to anything that he hasn't already done. And not only that he's already done it, but, but as he calls us to this, He's, he's, he's telling us, then that you don't have to be creative. You don't have to figure this out. This isn't, And this is where sometimes as churches we get in trouble when we begin to think that it's, it's we've got to be original. We've got to come up with something. We've got to make it more about this or that. Really, it's just about following Christ. And if we as churches would just focus there, we would be a healthier for our people, right? Just follow Christ. We don't have to come up with all kinds of other stuff to capture their attention. Just hold up Christ. And of course, though, we better remember that where does that lead? The steps of Christ lead us right to an old rugged cross. We're speaking of a man who was the man of sorrows, who was despised, rejected, forsaken, stricken, smitten, afflicted. Now, we want to be clear that in no way is the call on our lives here equal to what Christ came and did in his bearing sins. There's a different nature here. For us, it's not sin bearing. It's it's not a saving work. That all goes back to what Christ has done on our behalf. But we are called, even in our day today, to put our feet where He did and be prepared and ready for whatever comes our way as our fault. Verse 22, he says, that he, right after saying that we ought to follow in his steps, he says that he committed no sin. Neither was the seat found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So we're reviled, were mocked. But were never to return evil for evil. He committed no sin. Even when he was mistreated, as he spoke already on the cross. It's, it's one of the great challenges of our lives is when we are mistreated, can we not, it, we're, we're, not we're not denying that somebody has sinned against us. If we live in this Christian, if we live in this world as a Christian, we're going to have people sin against us. And not just the world, but even fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we know that we as well will sin against others. One of the greatest challenges when we are sinned against is not to respond sinfully. It's so difficult. And, and Jesus sets the example for us that he did not do these things. In fact, it, when it says that he, he committed no sin, you know, we, we, we probably don't really sit up there because we know that Jesus committed no sin. We just kind of say, well, of course, you know, it's, it's, it's Christ. But but it goes on to say, neither was the seat found in his mouth. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And not only is this what he didn't do, but what did he do? This is the real key. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When you read that there was that there was there was no deceit found in his mouth, you know, you, it makes you wonder here that in a very specific way, when Peter thinks about how Christ did not sin. He thinks about how he didn't sin with his words, how he didn't sin in his responses, and and maybe that's maybe that's important to Peter. Obviously, he's quoting from Isaiah fifty three, but maybe that comes to mind because Peter knows that that's the very way that he failed. And when the school girl turned to him and said, "Aren't you follower right, of Christ?" He sinned with his lips, denying Christ. He cursed. And for Peter, that's a moment that would never really go away. He would always remember. I think after the restoration of Peter, when Christ comes back to restore him, I still would say that Peter never forgot, but I think that was an improvement. Because that humbling process that it, it broke him. It reminded him of how he depends on Christ every moment. We can come to a passage like this and say, but but you don't know what it's like for me. You don't know what evil or, or unjust suffering I've dealt with. And the answer to that is you're absolutely right. I don't know. And I've, I've talked to enough people in counseling to realize that I know very little about unjust suffering when I listen to their stories. Some that have known it from childhood on, and 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 your heart breaks for them, and you wonder why should they have have to endure all of that? All I can do for you is do what Peter did for these readers and remind you that Peter's not the model, I'm not the model, you're not the model, Christ is. And the the best thing we can do is follow in his footsteps here by not returning evil for evil. That's that's the negative, not doing something, but then the positive, trusting ourselves to the Father who judges just. It's another reminder, we see it in the Psalms often, how we must keep an eye on that day. The day that will come when everything will be dealt with. And we have a father who knows and judges. He sees. He knows the motives. And he will deal with it all in a righteous way. Finally, let's go to hey, we see he is our soul's shepherd. He ends the, the, the passage here by saying that his readers were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. Jesus often talked about sheep and shepherd. Jesus wept when he saw the crowd and thought of them as sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as wandering, lost. He knew how sin had Distorted. And there was, there's always in Jesus' teachings uh, an emphasis on the one who's lost and the one who needs to be brought back into the fold. And Jesus is that good shepherd who searches for the one lost sheep. And Peter is our writer, right? If there's ever one who understood what it's like to wander, to fall at a distance, to desert or deny the Lord. But he would also recognize that, that his God is a, is a good shepherd who searches for the one, who searched him out and searches everyone, whoever returns to Christ. It's because he searched them out. That he is the, the, the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. There's there's a lot of ways you can apply this, but I think it's it's kind of a neat thing for us today to say to to be reminded uh, as a church that doesn't have a pastor, as a church that is searching for a pastor, that the great news is while you may not have a pastor, you always have your soul's shepherd. This church and grace as well are, are good examples of churches that have been have seen the faithfulness of God to protect and care for and lead in the absence of a pastor. Obviously, on the human level we would say, but there's been elders, there's been men who've led and who've kept and absolutely that's true. But we also know that, there's, that it's bigger than that. That it's greater than that. That God is the one. At the end of the day, this is his church. And you are his people. And he's faithful to shepherd. He's faithful and capable. That, that's what I think we can see in a passage like this. How capable of a bishop or shepherd do we have? As we read a text like this, we remind it, he's the one who bore our sins. No man could do that. He's the one who brings us back into the fold. No man could do that. Every pastor wishes he could do that. Every pastor wishes he could make everybody's loved ones that are wandering return. But we don't have that ability. We don't have that ability. We only look to the one who does. And we point, any good shepherd then would point you. To the one who can enter. When you're looking for a pastor, I get this opportunity to do this. It's a good thing that you want an under-shepherd. I think that's a God given desire for a church to long for that. But only want an under-shepherd as much as he will point you to. We've had enough celebrity pastors and, and Christianity lends itself, at, at least, you just think of what we're doing right now. You're all sitting there, I'm standing up here on the human level. Somebody would walk into this room and say, Well, that guy must be in charge. We're in a sad state if I'm in charge, but well, they would walk in the room and think, We're so this man's opinions must really matter for this thing. From we we must remind ourselves that while humanly that may be the way it looks, we need to know that this is a divine work that's taking place, and God uses the foolishness of this method called preaching and the weakness of a man called a pastor to accomplish something supernatural so that in the end, it'll be so clear because in the end, hopefully, you walk out saying, I heard more of God's grace today. I saw more of God's glory today. But, but what will also be hanging out there is He did it through such a big vessel so that no man God gets the glory. He's the true bishop and shepherd of your soul. Why would any decent pastor then want to do anything less than what Peter does here? Just continually point his hearer back to the Son of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's an old hymn that's kind of been devised. Has this little chorus that says, Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold of God. It's all his work from beginning to end. Peter's very mindful of that. Peter knows he would not even be writing these words had it not been for the great work of God in his life to bring him back. Because on his own, he would have failed. He did fail time and time again. The patience of our Savior. patience of our shepherd. Because I fail him every day. And yet he continues to work and use even my my failures as part of the process to conform and transform me more into the image of Christ. In so doing then, all the glory goes to heaven.